0: Hello, and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Yasmin Serhan. COP26 has begun in Glasgow, and on our shows this week, we're taking an alternative look at the climate crisis, covering the issues that don't get the recognition they deserve. One of those issues is greenwashing, where companies mislead consumers about the green credentials of their products and services or about the business as a whole. According to Greenpeace, we're living in a golden age of greenwashing, and in the autumn budget, Chancellor Rishi Sunak brought in new standards for environmental reporting to weed out the practice. Joining me to discuss greenwashing is Alice Bell, co-director of the climate charity Possible, author of Our Biggest Experiment, A History of the Climate Crisis, and a former guest on The Bunker. Hello, Alice. Welcome back to the show. Hiya. So I've just given a really small introduction on greenwashing. But tell us how does it work in practice? It's kind of a you know a magician's technique of
1: misdirection. It's like don't look at all this oil I'm burning, look at this tree that I just planted over there. That's it at its most simple. Greenpeace's line about we're living in a golden age of greenwashing is very accurate because it's become a developed art. Like people have been working on this for decades like when I so I've just written a book on the history of the climate crisis and I was like all right so people have been greenwashing probably like since the 1980s there was a lot of environmental activism in the 80s Captain Planet was invented, Blue Peter got a green badge and stuff. And people were like, ah, I can monetize this. And I thought that was maybe when it started, but it was really fascinating researching my book and realizing, no. The earliest examples I've really found are kind of early 20th century, but I'd almost really like to do a whole project digging deeper. I bet there was greenwash in like the 1820s. Wow. <laughs> you know, people have been on this for a long time and they have mastered the art of it. And so it happens in lots of different places and in some really like quite sophisticated
0: ways as well. I'm excited to get kind of get more into the examples. But you, you mentioned your book, which I know focuses on the history of the climate crisis and the scientists who helped develop our understanding of climate change. What can you tell us about the history of, of greenwashing Are Greenpeace, right? I mean, you, you've just mentioned their quote about us living in the golden age. It sounds like they're onto something there. So what can you tell us about the history of it? I'd say the really key moment happened in kind of the 50s and 60s
1: with littering campaigns. So basically post-war, particularly in the US, there was a real consumer boom, like people started buying stuff. And we also saw the development of more disposable products, So, which is great if you want to sell people stuff, because instead of selling people some one thing that they then reuse, you sell them the same thing again and again and again, like the classic thing being the disposable razor. With plastics and also paper packaging, all sorts of other forms of disposable products became more and more popular. But they started to pile up. And people didn't like all this piling up of rubbish. Lots of people are quite thrifty. They can see the problem of just getting rid of stuff. Particularly farmers in the US were worried about litter in terms of like bottles, like glass bottles and things, and how it might hurt livestock. So they were starting to campaign against litter. And their focus was the packaging companies, not the people who were littering, but the packaging companies saying, why are you producing this stuff in the first place? Packaging companies could see on the horizon they were about to get regulated and so launched anti-littering campaigns, which put the attention on the consumers. Mm. So it's not their fault. It's not the tobacco company's fault for creating cigarette butts that don't degrade. It's the people who just leave them on the floor. And that kind of makes sense because, you know, like if you see someone littering, like that's a bad thing <laughs> and mm-hmm, you want to yeah. tell them off or you, you don't like litter, you might pick it up. So you get loads of people doing good and picking up the litter and that kind of feels right and like you're doing the good thing for the environment, but it's a massive Piece of misdirection There's a campaign that was voiced by all people Ronald Reagan back when he was an, an actor, kind of saying mm. he didn't say the words. The packaging comp- industry doesn't litter; people litter. But it was basically that. It was basically like <laughs> it's not our well, fault; it's your fault. And it's the same kind of spin. It's created some really amazing things like Keep America Beautiful and Keep Britain Tidy and things that do kind of good work. But it, at the same time as doing good work, they're also putting the focus on the consumer, not the fact that we're creating plastic bottles, cigarette butts, um, you know, all these other problems in the first place. And that not only is powerful in itself, but has become a model that has been replicated again and again and again. So in the last two decades, we've seen companies like BP really focus on the idea of carbon footprinting. Now, carbon footprinting as a technique is not necessarily a bad thing in itself. And it's like, uh, you, know, you can find out all sorts of interesting things from it. But it gets used as a way of putting the focus on smaller things. So we all do lots of little things and worry, obsess, and fight and argue about, oh, should I fly or not next week, or am I going vegetarian? Rather than going, oh my God, we need to dismantle the the oil industry.
0: That's really fascinating, and I think even just thinking back to like kind of myself growing up in the states, obviously, I, that that focus on the individual and your own actions was was really present. And I think when you kind of put it that way too, you know, we we spend so much time focusing on the people who use like plastic straws and and not so much time on on the companies that produce them. I would imagine, though, as our focus on plastics and and the companies that that produce these products, as the focus perhaps has sharpened over time, I would imagine that the practice of greenwashing has evolved. Has it? Have we seen it change at all in the last decade or so as people have become more aware of the, the climate crisis?
1: Yeah, and I think you've seen I mean you see more classic things, uh, almost straightforward things, which is sort of like, I've planted a forest, (laughs) ignore this other thing. Or when you look at adverts for oil companies, you'd think that the only thing they do is build solar farms, or like there was this amazing thing that Shell did a few years ago where they got a load of football pitches in Brazil and got Pele to present in front of them and they were lined with this special flooring that if you ran on, it could help generate electricity. And it was just so beautiful. and It was an utopian and incredible, uh, but it wasn't really anything that was going to offset seriously what Shell actually does. And it's sort of like, if you look at the adverts, you're like, oh, you're just doing loads of great clever things with algae or solar panels, not any digging for oil in the Arctic. So there's that kind of end of things. And people have got really good at calling that out. To the extent though, that we now get also like people being shy about saying things that they're doing that are green. So. I don't think it's been so true in the last few years, but there was a period. So there was a period in the in the kind of naughties at the beginning of the century where we saw a lot of people, a lot of people getting interested in climate change on the run up to the Copenhagen talks in two thousand and nine. It was not as big as it's been the last few years, but it was almost as big. There was like Dave Attenborough documentaries, celebrities doing stuff in the Arctic. It was all very exciting, and lots of companies were like, "I'm green, I'm green." BP even like rebranded for a bit as Beyond Petroleum. It was like, there was lots of people who wanted to tell you their green credentials. And there was a backlash. Lots of organizations were calling out greenwash bullshit and they were right to do so. But as a result, then some companies were like, oh, I don't want to say this because people will say it's greenwash. And that can be problematic because we do want companies to celebrate when they're doing green things. It can be difficult because they might be doing a green thing in one area, but not in the other. And that's not to say that it's okay if like Heathrow Airport has a recycling project for its coffee cups. <laughs> like, I think we should be focusing on the fact that they're an airport, but at the same time, I do think that
0: like companies should be talking about the green work they're doing because that encourages other companies to do more. It's part of the concern with greenwashing that consumers kind of get tricked into thinking that this crisis is is actually like people are going about solving this crisis that they don't really need to worry because these companies are doing things like I walked by Nando's the other day, for example, and I'm pretty sure I saw something in their window about them, like, you know, either reaching net, net zero or being carbon neutral at, at some point in the near future. Obviously, you know, as a Nando's consumer it makes me feel quite good. I can carry on, you know, ordering my peri-peri chicken because I know the company is is doing something right. Is, is that part of the concern here?
1: Yeah, and that it's all designed to make you feel good about it. And it can be used to make you feel good about other things that you might feel uncomfortable about. So like a company, for example, that sells you a lot of chicken, it might make you feel less uncomfortable about the way those chickens are treated or our meat industry uh, because you feel at least, oh, it's low carbon. There's been particularly controversies in the past around kind of greening the military or greening the arms trade. People will argue, well, if we're going to have an arms trade, at least could it be environmentally friendly? And then other people are like, no, they're trying to use greenwash to make you feel comfortable about the arms trade. You're right. Yes, it it can have a problem about making people feel like we're doing okay with climate change, but can also have an effect to make you think kind of to dull your critique of other things, too it relates maybe to a larger question of like how much do we celebrate the things going right with climate change because Hmm. there are lots of things going right and I think we should know about them and I think a lot of us don't always know about them and uh, we can maybe be sort of more worried not that we're more worried than we necessarily need to be but kind of think that it's all hopeless like there is stuff we're doing that we can have Hmm. strength in and we should invest more in and we should get excited about but then the other side of that is, oh, does that mean that we think it's okay? And I mean, that's something that as a climate campaigner, I struggle on day to day, and we all do, because no one's going to get this right. It's always so hard to to tread the line between letting people know how awful
0: it is and making sure they know that we are still doing stuff. Which companies would you say are, are the biggest greenwashers? What techniques do they use? What tactics are common among the biggest? Well, I think the oil industry are really the masters of it. And they work across so many different other
1: areas. So you'll also see the oil industry being accused of pink washing or artwashing, or youth washing. <laughs> There's all these other phrases that have, have emerged. So, for example, art washing is when they invest in sponsoring art galleries to make themselves look, uh, to you know, to take all the associations with art galleries that make them look like positive and progressive and give them access to people in power. What they want is... To be able to exist in society, and for people to not call out their existence, for them, it to be socially acceptable, for there to be an oil industry, and they'll use a range of tactics. Which, in some points in recent history, greenwashing has been an appropriate one. But if green isn't isn't popular, like it hasn't been at some points in the last thirty years, people haven't been so interested in green stuff. They're like, oh, I'm not bothering with that. You know, I'll, I'll invest in sponsoring something else or making myself look progressive or positive in some other way. The oil industry have had to invest a lot in PR because their social license to operate is questionable. For many decades now, people have been looking at them going, really? Should you exist? Should we allow you to happen? And just like the packaging industry had to invent Keep America Tidy or Keep America Beautiful, the oil industry have been pushing against the kind of wave of history, which is that they are going to wind down, well, really since the 70s.
0: The 2024 general election will make history, not least because it's the first one a prime minister looks like he's actively trying to lose. Stay on top of the vote and cut through the nonsense with Oh God, What Now?, the original no bullshit politics podcast with me, Dorian Linsky, plus top journalists, comedians and commentators. Twice a week, we follow Richie Sunak's doom spiral, keep a critical eye on Keir Starmer's progress, look at the big issues that will shape the vote and have a desperately needed laugh as well. We're proudly independent, so we don't have to stick to fake balance or give a weak both sides take on any issue. We can call it all as we see it, and we can swear too. So if you're looking for election coverage that captures how people really feel, try Oh God, What Now? High quality analysis, brilliant conversation and jokes twice a week with extra special editions in the run-up to the election too. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts. A lot of these companies have commitments to net zero emissions by 2050. Would you say that these are genuine commitments or are they just another way to greenwash?
1: Well, the phrase net zero has offered a huge set of opportunities for greenwashing. The slipperiness is in the word net. So the idea is that you can pollute up to a point as long as you kind of find some way of of offsetting that. Now, If you're taking net zero seriously, that is just meant to be a very small number of emissions for the things that we cannot decarbonize, where we might have to emit some carbon, you know, like we breathe, you know, (laughs) Um, there is a natural like uh, balance between oxygen and carbon dioxide that humans Engage with and maybe meddling with a bit. Uh, and so, what we want to get to, like seriously, in terms of the next few decades, is whether yes, there will be a bit of, of extra carbon we'll be emitting for some things that are really difficult to decarbonize, and we'll some, find some way of, of balancing that out. But we can't balance that out on a big scale, there isn't enough land. Um, world is is a finite resource. There's a limit to how much pollution we can put in it. And people get slippery with it. So they're like, but we did the maths and we're going to burn all this coal, but we're going to plant all these trees. And you're like, yeah, but where are you going to plant all these trees? The other thing that's really slippery about the net zero question when it gets applied to companies is that companies say, well, we're net zero. And what they mean is their own operations. So it means that they will, for example, have built a really environmentally friendly HQ, which hardly wait, you know, they reuse all their water, they have solar panels, everything in their their head office is is very environmental. They've been investing in lots of software to do meetings remotely so people don't have to travel, but they're still selling oil and gas. And they're like, oh, yeah, well, mm-hmm. we're not counting what people do once we sell it. So you might be able to go to, it's like going to a petrol station that's like, a net zero petrol station because the station itself has solar power, but they're selling you oil, which you will go and then burn. And they're like, Well, that's your problem in terms of burning. Like, well, I think that as an oil company, maybe you have responsibility for what you're selling. And lots of companies avoid talking about that in terms of their net zero pledges. And that it's not just the oil companies, it's also lots of other high carbon activities like flying driving, things like that. And uh, that is always a, a phrase to keep an eye on. If you're on your lookout for greenwash, the words net zero can be quite slippery. But I mean, even also just the notion of offsetting. Like when people I am going to ask you about that, yeah. So when people say it's carbon neutral, that's also something to be careful of. Mm-hmm. That generally means that, okay, we've emitted a load of carbon, but we've like planted some trees. And sometimes that's a good thing. It's like, all right, that's good. You planted trees, we need trees. But it only, offsetting is basically cheating. Like, and there's a limit to how many places we can plant trees. And sometimes mm-hmm. this planting of trees trees can be really dodgy, like, or projects like building solar or wind, it might be done in occupied land. Like people might, and this happens, people will clear people off their lands to... Plant a forest or to build a solar farm. And it can have all sorts of other human rights or environmental problems, but it looks good on the carbon equations that you want to put on your label on the front of your face cream. That doesn't mean that if if a company's told you they're building a forest, that might be a really good thing. You shouldn't necessarily just assume it's terrible. Planting trees are good, but also planting trees can be used for a lot of, to hide a lot of stuff. Um, there's definitely some joke about not being able to see the carbon dioxide from the trees or something like that. Anyway, there's some joke that someone cleverer than me can can come up with
0: that aspect. But yeah, you've got to be careful of that that carbon neutral thing because there's a lot of maths going on. So when consumers are going to book a flight on, say, EasyJet, and and I use them because I checked earlier, they called themselves the world's first major airline to offset carbon emissions. What that means to the consumer isn't that they're getting on a flight that just miraculously has the technology to not emit any carbon, but rather that EasyJet has engaged in some sort of projects, whether it's planting trees or building solar panels or something like that.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it probably comes down to how you feel about the carbon that has been emitted for your flight. Now, like it might be that you really feel that that flight is necessary. And I'm not going to judge you on that. I've taken flights in recent years for reasons that I felt were important for me. uh, Other people might well feel that they're not appropriate. And there I have some guilt about some of the flights I've taken. You know, like there are things that we will do living in the society we live in that are high carbon. We just kind of have to own that. And it's probably a good thing you maybe, you know, if you are going to fly to offset it, but uh, that doesn't mean that the flight that you didn't need to take is okay because someone's planted some trees because the flight is still taken. The carbon dioxide has still gone up in the atmosphere and we probably needed to plant those trees anyway. It's a good rule of thumb is to think carbon offsetting is basically cheating. uh, (laughs) And that's sort of a starting point for when where you work out your other stuff from it. And the other thing that airlines are really good at doing, which is another sort of strand to this greenwashing thing, which is telling you about technology that might happen in the future, so they're like, mm-hmm. look at all these things we're investing in the future. We're going to have all these electric solar powered planes and stuff. And you're like, okay, fine. But that's not going to happen for at least another s- several decades if we're lucky. Uh, so that doesn't mean that my flight now is okay. But they do all of this to make you feel good about your flight. It's maybe technology washing or kind of another form of misdirection. It's like, look over here at the future because this future technology that might happen maybe possibly in a few decades if we're really lucky. That means we don't have to deal with the bad technology we've got now.
0: I know that you mentioned that it's not just companies that that are doing the greenwashing, but that also countries can be guilty of this as well. And of course, you know we have world leaders gathering in Glasgow. What governments are are guilty of greenwashing, and of those, which do you think are the worst offenders? I think there's a lot of politicians that understandably want to celebrate the things that they feel
1: are good and make sure that you don't listen to the, you don't look at the things that they're kind of sweeping under the the table. There's been a lot of discussion in the last week about Saudi Arabia, and it's like, mm-hmm. well, it's good that you're doing this but also oil (laughs) a bit like kind of looking at the oil industry going well it's good that you're investing in solar but also are you looking at how much you are still looking at oil it is always something that i think we should have a conversation about and there will be a a legitimate argument about it like i was talking to somebody recently about norway and they'll say well you know norway gets away with being such an oil and gas dominated economy in so many ways because of so much money they give through development and you're like well that doesn't mean they shouldn't do that like There's lots of good things about Norway, but there are still lots of problems and we shouldn't be giving them a free pass on the problems. An example, I think, in the UK, which uh, is one that I think speaks to a lot of the slipperiness of it, is that Britain really loves to show off about how it's kicked coal, like how little coal is in our electrical grid. And how they're leading international movement away from coal. Now, that is a generally, genuinely historic thing that Britain is kicking coal out of its electrical grid. That is great that we are doing that. And I think that Britain has been very successful in lobbying other countries to have this idea of the, you know, of kicking coal and this becoming a thing that people are going to do. And this is, this is wonderful. But at the same time, one of the reasons why Britain can kick coal is that we import a lot of our goods and services. So we can sit there and like I've got an app on my phone that tells me how much coal is in the grid at any point because I'm a bit of an energy nerd. And I can look at that and smugly go, oh, I've just charged my computer with like 50 percent wind power and 20 percent solar. And don't I feel good about my electrical grid? But that computer was made in a country which has to burn a lot of coal to make the products that we import. And so we look at China and India and go, oh, isn't it awful they've got so much coal? Like One of the reasons why kids in China and India have to cough through all the air pollution, why they have a challenge with in terms of uh, their carbon emissions and people looking at their carbon emissions going, oh, that's very high, is because people in the West are importing goods that are being made using that coal. Now, that's good for their economies because they're selling stuff to us, but also we need to think about how people... You know, people in Britain have, are, are part of the coal problem, even if when they're charging their phone, there isn't much coal being burnt for that electricity. Uh, and that's something that we need to be, you know, pushing the, the UK government on, or well, pushing British people on. It's not just about coal, it's also about gas. We need to have more of a conversation about gas in the UK. All our conversations about heat in the last few weeks have started that at least. We're starting to talk about that a bit more than we used to. We need to talk about things like flying and transport and all the oil that goes through our economy through through transport. Um, we need to talk about the fact that the government is still thinking about coal being OK in the UK in some context and also being like, oh, let's still have oil and gas and not let the genuine successes in terms of coal
0: distract us from all the multiple other long shopping list of things we want them to be doing. So I guess maybe just to close, what do you think that the public can do about greenwashing or should be doing about greenwashing?
1: I think as a rule of thumb, remember, offsetting is cheating, (laughs) but that doesn't necessarily mean that offsetting projects are all bad. I think we should be cheering green action when we can, but don't mean that that lets people get away with bad activities. Um, So yeah, keep an eye on phrases like net zero and carbon neutral, because they are often a sign that there's something going on underneath that you might at least want to know about, even if you decide oh, I definitely like this carbon neutral beer or whatever, because at least they're doing something as opposed to these other ones that aren't doing anything, or it signals a sense of good values that you believe in. At least kind of digging around and seeing what that is, is worth looking at. And when it comes to politicians and companies that are involved in high carbon activities, like selling oil and gas or flying or driving an SUV or something, should be really just calling it out. But don't get too stuck on the performative element of it. I think one of the reasons uh, politicians get really sensitive about this is they get like, if you know, you will see... Michael Gove with his reusable plastic cup you know plastic waste is so many opportunities for greenwashing and so much sort of performing not being green and we can get really bogged down in that and therefore avoid the big things so we can end up having a big argument about a politician using a plastic straw and not have the bigger argument that we really should be doing about the politician granting a license for an oil field um to keep your eye on the on the big picture, I think, and don't get pulled into too many small things.
0: Well, great. Uh, well Alice, this has been really illuminating. Thank you so much for joining me on The Bunker today. Thanks for having me. And thanks for listening to The Bunker. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please consider backing us on Patreon. Search Bunker Patreon Podcast to find out more. We'll be back tomorrow for another edition of The Bunker Daily. The Bunker Daily was presented by Yasmin Serhan. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Jelna Safranievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.